You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We'll read together the first nine verses of John chapter 5. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Let's pray together. Our Father, we beg for your presence here as we gather together for your word. We have sung to you the expressions of our hearts and our minds, our praises, and now we still our own hearts and our own lips so that we might listen to you in your word. May this time be profitable. May your word be our guide and may your spirit be our teacher. We are all learners here and help us to learn together, uniting our hearts by faith. And O Spirit of God, be our teacher here today for the glory of Christ and our Father. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are beginning this morning to dive into the details of John chapter 5. I mentioned last week that there is a certain beauty in the text of Scripture when we look at it from the bird's eye perspective, which we did last week, and getting an overview of John chapter 5, and we saw what the controversy is there and how that relates to the rest of the John's gospel and what has come before and what has come after. And we got some idea of some of the themes that are going to sort of trace their way through the rest of this gospel as we're studying it. And I offered to you last week a very simple three-point, three-part outline for John's, uh, for the gospel of John chapter 5. And because it's very simple, it really breaks down into three scenes, as it were. The first one is in verses 1 through 9, which is the miracle. The second scene is verses 9b, actually, through verse 18, which is the controversy that comes out of this miracle. And the third scene is the discourse from verses 19 through 47. The miracle gives rise to the controversy, and the controversy is answered or addressed by our Lord in the discourse. So all of chapter 5 is one large unit. Chapter 5 gives us the third miracle that John records and the third discourse that John records. This is the third miracle, the first being the turning of water into wine, the second being the healing of the nobleman's son at a distance in chapter 4, and this is the third miracle, the healing of the man at the pool at Bethesda. It's also the third discourse in chapter 5. We had the first discourse, which was the new birth discourse in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. The second was the living water discourse with the woman at the well in chapter 4, and this is what some call the divine son discourse of chapter 5. The miracle that is recorded at the beginning of chapter 5 seems very intentional, very deliberate. As we read through the passage and we get actually past verse 9 into verse 10 and following, 
we get the very distinct impression that everything that is happening with this miracle is very intentional and very purposeful. It seems intended to raise the controversy that it raises, and everything that Jesus does seems very intentional and deliberate in order to sort of set the stage for the laying out of his divine claims in the last half of the chapter in this discourse. He basically uses the miracle to set the stage, as it were, in order for him to make these divine these claims of his own divinity and to proclaim his own sonship and his own messianic credentials. So it's very intentional. In fact, we get the feeling that the miracle in chapter 5, at the beginning of it, is deliberate because we see Jesus seeking this man out. This man was sought out by Jesus. He wasn't like the nobleman's son, or the nobleman in chapter 4, who actually sought out the Lord Jesus and came to him. This miracle is different in that this man couldn't seek Jesus. He's paralyzed. He's crippled. He's laying at the pool. He has no prior knowledge of Jesus, no ability to seek him out, not even any knowledge of him that he would seek him out. Not only was the man sought out by Jesus, the man seems to be singled out by Jesus. There was a multitude of people at the pool. Imagine a pool bigger than this with far more people than you see sitting here today, all of them crippled and lame, a multitude of people filled with people, a full scene of crippled and sick people. And how many did Jesus heal? One. Not only did Jesus seek this man out, he singled this man out. In fact, he singled this man out, I think, because of the type of illness that he had and what the miracle would demonstrate about his own nature and, and listen to this carefully, and because it would raise the controversy that it raised and it would intentionally step on the Pharisees' toes, as it were. All of it is deliberate. There's nothing here that's accidental. Jesus didn't just happen through the pool one day and just happen to see one particular man sitting there and then think about healing him and then later remember, oh, it was the Sabbath, I really shouldn't have done that. And then surprised at the controversy that was raised out of that. Nothing like that at all. This was deliberate. Jesus went to this place, he chose this man, he did it on this particular day. He could have done it on any day, he could have done any man, but he chose this one. Everything about it is deliberate. Now we're going to look at basically three things. This Sunday we're going to look at in verses 1 through 9, we're going to see the condition of this man. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the cure and then the consequences of the cure. A great alliteration, but it's really simple. Obviously, I didn't lose any sleep on any nights coming up with that one. The the condition of the man, the cure, and then the consequences of the cure. And we're going to look today just at his condition, just at the man's condition. Now, we kind of set the stage last week with verse 1. Read it again with me. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, the after these things doesn't mean immediately after what followed in chapter 4. John, this is kind of John's way, a literary technique, if you will, of sort of moving the story along. This happened, and then sometime after this, there's no particular length of time that's denoted here. It's not necessarily immediately. It's not necessarily a long period of time. It's just this is the next thing. You see it at the beginning of chapter 6 again. You see it in chapter 3, verse 22. After these things in chapter 4, at some time later than that, Jesus was in Jerusalem for a feast. And I mentioned to you last week that we don't know which feast this was. Nobody knows which feast this was. I think it's very possible that this is one of the three pilgrimage feasts, the one of the three required feasts that every Jewish male was required to attend in Jerusalem in order to keep the law. I think it was one of those three pilgrimage feasts. But it was just a feast, and it was an unknown feast. Now, whether you think it was a, a Passover or not, I'm quite comfortable, to be honest with you, in arriving at the conclusion that the feast mentioned in verse 1 was a Passover feast. Probably sometime in the spring, early in Jesus' ministry, Probably a feast that would allow us to reckon for a third year in the public ministry of Jesus. That's the feast. It's an unknown feast. 
And it was sometime after these that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now that may sound like a small detail to you, but it's actually a very significant detail, and here's why. What was Jesus doing in going up to Jerusalem to observe a feast? If this was one of the three pilgrimage feasts. The three pilgrimage feasts, by the way, were the Passover feast and the Pentecost feast and the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles being in the fall, Passover and Pentecost being in the springtime feast. Jesus, in going up to observe a feast in Jerusalem, particularly if it was one of the mandatory required pilgrimage feasts, Jesus, in doing that, was showing honor and respect to the ordinances and the observances of the Mosaic Law. Chapter 5, verse 1 seems like an insignificant detail. He went to Jerusalem for a feast. But by the time we get to verse 18, what is Jesus going to be accused of doing? Dishonoring the Mosaic observance of the Sabbath. Verse 1 reminds us Jesus, in his life and ministry, observed the Mosaic ordinances, observed the Mosaic uh, feasts and festivals and everything that went with it. Jesus was not somebody who shunned his nose at everything Mosaic, including the feasts and the festivals and all of the requirements of the law. Jesus Christ, in his earthly life and ministry, fulfilled and upheld the law and observed the law completely and fully. This is what theologians call the active obedience of Christ. Now, that's significant to you because without the active obedience of Christ, you could not be saved. You didn't realize that, did you? And here's how you couldn't be saved without the active obedience of Christ. By active obedience of Christ, what we mean is that Jesus himself fulfilled all of the righteous demands of the law of God. All of them. He kept the law perfectly. Why did he live 33 years and keep the law perfectly? He lived 33 years and kept the law perfectly on behalf of all those who will trust in him. See, here's my problem as a sinner before God. My problem as a sinner before God is that I have no righteousness. Further, since I have violated even one of God's commandments, it means that I can obtain and I can acquire and I can produce no righteousness because violating one commandment makes me a violator of the whole law. So I can't, if I have just sinned one time, say, well, I'll make up for that by keeping the rest of the law. I can't do that. My one sin makes me unrighteous, a lawbreaker in the sight of God. So no matter how many righteous deeds I can do, if I even could do any, which I don't believe that we can, no matter how many righteous deeds I do, it is not enough to acquire any righteousness because I have forever destroyed my righteous standing before God by virtue of violating the law of God even one time. My condition is even worse in that it is Adam's sin itself which makes me a sinner by nature and by birth, not just what I do. So I am by nature a sinner and I have no righteousness before God whatsoever. So it is not sufficient for the Lord Jesus to come and die for sins and merely take away my sin debt. Something else has to happen. What else has to happen? I actually have to receive a righteousness that is not my own. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians 3. When he says that he had kept the law, and concerning the law he was a Pharisee, and he was zealous for the law of God, born of the tribe of Benjamin, all of those things which might in the eyes of people make him righteous. Paul says, I count all of that as loss so that I may obtain a righteousness that is not my own, that is not based upon the law, but the righteousness which is from God, that it is the gift of God. It is God's righteousness, and it's a righteousness that comes to me by faith. So that in the eyes of God, and this will blow your mind, in the eyes of God, he sees you right now, if you are in Christ, if you have repented and trusted him, God sees you right now as if you had never in your life told a lie, never lusted, never coveted, never dishonored your parents, 
never broken the Sabbath, never violated any commandment of the law of God. That is how God sees you when you are in Christ. From the moment of faith in Him, all of that righteousness that Christ had, because He kept the law perfectly, is your righteousness, and God sees you as having kept the law perfectly. Even though you have never kept the law for one moment of one day of your entire life. Never. You have never, for one moment of your life, loved God the way that the law requires you to love God. And you're a violator of the law. So what does chapter 5, verse 1 remind me of? That Jesus Christ kept perfectly the law on my behalf. And His law-keeping is imputed. It is credited to my account by virtue of my faith in Him. So God doesn't see me as a lawbreaker. God sees me as if I had attended this feast in John chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus did that on my behalf. Every fulfillment of every law He ever fulfilled was done on my behalf so that I would not have to fulfill that law because I cannot. And how do I get that righteousness? By faith in Him. And at the moment of faith, all of that righteousness becomes mine. Now move on to verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And we could go into all of the stuff about, well, there's different variations of the spelling of this, and different people think it's in different locations, and I'm not going to get into that. I think that there was a pool by the sheep gate called Bethesda in the Hebrew. And archaeologists are relatively certain that they have actually found the location of that pool today. There was a foundation of a church that sits on that site that was unearthed back in the 1800s when they were renovating the church, and they found a pool there. And a pool, and actually the, the place and the locations of the porticos can still be seen today. They, they know where this pool is at. It was north of the temple complex, near the sheep gate. The sheep gate, they think, was called the sheep gate because that was where they would have brought in all of the sheep into the temple for sacrifice. So it was by the sheep gate. There was a pool there, and it was called Bethesda. And Bethesda literally means house of mercy. House of mercy. Sometimes it could be translated house of outpourings, but even then the idea would be the outpouring of mercy. So it's the house of mercy. Now, I think this is significant, and I'm not going to do anything more than mention this, but it may be that this miracle sticks in the mind of John because he has already told us that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here we have the Lamb of God who is near the sheep gate at a pool at the house of mercy performing a miracle of mercy, taking away a burden of a man that we find out later on was caused by his sin. There's beautiful parallelism there, isn't it? Now, that'll preach, and you can get a whole sermon out of that, but I'm not going to do anything other than just mention it for your enjoyment. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is at the Sheep Gate performing a miracle of mercy in a place called the House of Mercy. I love it. I love it when Scripture does that. Now verse 3 says that this man was with a multitude of those who were sick and blind and lame and withered. Sick and blind and lame and withered. A multitude. And by multitude, by the way, I don't think we should understand this to mean tens upon tens upon tens of thousands. There wouldn't have been room for that. By multitude, I think we are to understand that there was a large group here, a lot of them, a lot of people at this pool, probably as many people as the pool could hold. And they suffered from a variety of ailments. Some were lame, some were sick. This man had an illness. Some were withered and some were blind. And we can say a lot more about the condition of this man. This man has one of these conditions that John mentions in verse 3. And there's more to be said about his condition, but we have to deal with this issue of what are you and I to make of the end of verse 3 and verse 4. Read verse 3 again with me. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water, 
Whoever then first, after stirring up the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, verse 3 and verse 4 kind of create a little bit of an, of an issue as to what we're to do with these two verses. Now, if you're reading, and I would guess, probably the King James and the New King James, you didn't notice anything about those two verses. Maybe your translation doesn't even have a textual note or a note in the margin that says anything. If you're reading the NASB or the NIB, uh, NIV, well, I guess it would be the NIB too, right, the New International Bible, We'll just call it the NIV. If you're reading the NIV or the NASB, then you will probably notice that that text is set apart in brackets with a textual note, something in your margin. If you're reading the ESV, do we have enough translations or do we not have enough translations? If you're reading the ESV with the English Standard Version, which is a very Reformation-minded, conservative, accurate translation, no problems with the ESV, then you will notice that what I just read at the end of verse 3 and verse 4 is taken entirely out of the text and is actually relegated to the place of a footnote. Now, sometimes when you're reading the Bible and you come across this at different locations, you will read a text, you'll read a footnote or a, a marginal note, like the one in my Bible, and I'm, I'm reading from the NASB. It says concerning verse 3, as a little letter there, and then I go over to the margin, I find in the margin the little er, uh, letter, verse 3, early manuscripts do not contain the remainder of verse 3 and verse 4. In other words, it's not all of verse 3 that's in question. It is the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4. That is in question. Now, when we read in the New Testament things like that, and, you, and if you're kind of observant and you read and you follow the little letters next to the notations in your text, if your translation has that, you'll notice all kinds of these things called textual variants. And this is a, a larger textual variant. It's not a matter of two words being flipped around or uh, one word being added or one word being missing or a misspelled word or any of those textual variants are rather insignificant. This is what we would call a more significant textual variant. What are we to do with the end of verse 3 and verse 4? Well, let me tell you what your reaction should not be. Your reaction should not be to say, Ah, oh, I can't trust my Bible. Nobody knows what was written in there, and it's changed over the course of 2,000 years, and everybody's added their own things, and they've taken verses out and added verses in, and we don't know what the original said, so I just fold up the whole thing and forget it. It's a wrong, wrong reaction. Nor should your reaction be to say, there's some secret cabal of people out there who are conspiring together to take verses out of my precious text. And anybody who suggests that this verse is not in the original is part of that secret cabal of people who would like to take out all of the good things. Maybe Dan Brown was right. And there's this Christian hierarchy of people who are really trying to hide the truth of things like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas from me. I need to go back and read the Da Vinci Code again and find out what the truth is. That's not an appropriate response. Nor is the appropriate response to pick up stones and throw them at people who disagree with you about whether verse 3 and verse 4 are part of the original text. All three of those are wrong responses. There are different passages in the New Testament, some of them significant. There's one in 1 John chapter 5 called the Johannian comma, which is a phrase that is highly disputed. There is at the end of John, uh, the Gospel of Mark what is called the longer ending of Mark, or the original ending of Mark, depending on which camp you're in. And then there is in John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. John chapter 8, that's a textual variant, and there's questions regarding that text. And then we have one here in chapter 5 with verse, the end of verse 3 and verse 4. What are we to do with these different textual variants? How do we understand them? How, how, what, what should we do with this? Should we embrace it or not embrace it? Basically, it boils down to... With these two verses, we have two issues. And I'm going to separate these out for you. Two issues that we have to address. 
The first issue is this. Do verse 3, the end of verse 3. And by the way, as I'm saying verse 3 from here on out, I don't mean all of verse 3. I just mean the the part in question at the end. The last half of verse 3 and verse 4. Do verse 3 and verse 4 belong? In other words, were they original when John sat down and wrote? Were they there? Did he write these out? And then they were somehow missed in early manuscripts or faulty manuscripts, if your view is that the manuscripts were faulty. Or were these verses added sometime later or crept into the text in some way, either through a faulty manuscript or a scribal gloss? Two basic camps. The first issue, do they belong? Do they belong? Were they there in John's original gospel? The second issue is a different issue, and we'll deal with this one as well. What are we to do with it? The angel stirring up the water. And the healing, is this a miracle? Is it superstition? How do we understand it? So two issues. First, do these verses belong? Verse 3 and verse 4, are they part of John's original gospel? Now the answer to that question is either yes or no. Follow me so far? Were they there in John's original writing? Yes or no? Some would say yes. And for instance, I would point to conservative, reformed, solid scholar like J.C. Ryle, whom I've quoted in this pulpit before, Nothing wrong with J.C. Ryle. He's a great man. J.C. Ryle would say, he wrote back in the 1800s, he would say that the textual evidence against including verse 3 and 4 is not strong, and therefore we should take it as it is and interpret it as it is and just understand the text in the way that it is. Now, I say that he wrote back in the 1800s, not because that's a mark against him or anything like that. It's just simply, as I look through all the resources that I had at my fingertips, I couldn't find a modern writer, somebody post-1900, who felt the same way. There may be them, they may be there, but I don't, I don't know of it. I didn't have any at my fingertips. So J.C. Ryle would be in that camp. It's original, and we ought to take it as original, and any attempt to take this out, of course, would be heresy then. Then, on the other side of the spectrum is not the liberals, not the unorthodox, not the radical skeptics, the Sam Harris's and the Christopher Hitchens and all the atheists and the neo-atheists and people who, like Bart Ehrman, who try and attack scripture. It's not that group that's over here. On the other side of this answer would be other conservative, reformed, reliable, orthodox, non-heretical people who think that verse 3 and verse 4 were not part of John's original gospel. Leon Morris, probably the best exegetical work I have on the gospel of John, conservative and not one to side with the higher critics and people who seek to destroy the authenticity of Scripture, Leon Morris writes this, the manuscript evidence makes it certain that it is no part of the original gospel, end quote. So if it's no part of the original gospel, and if that's the camp you're going to land in, then how is it that it got into our text to begin with? Is everybody following me, or are you in like in the second stages of anesthesia so far? Everybody still with me? If it's not part of the original gospel, then how is it that it actually got into our translations? John MacArthur, hardly a liberal, hardly a non-conservative, hardly somebody who rails against Scripture by any means, 40 years of defending the authenticity and the accuracy, the authority, the inerrancy, the infallibility of Scripture, John MacArthur writes this, The earliest and most reliable Greek manuscripts omit the last phrase of verse 3 and all of verse 4. Others include the passage but mark it as spurious. Despite its brevity, the omitted section contains more than half a dozen words or phrases foreign to John's writings. Now that in itself is not evidence that it's not legitimate. Just because a passage has something unique to that passage and no other is not evidence itself including three not found anywhere else in the New Testament. These facts, along with the absence of any specific mention of angels in the rest of the passage, indicate that the section was not part of John's original account. In the years after John wrote his gospel, scribes apparently added this material as a marginal note to present the popular explanation for the stirring of the water. 
Later manuscripts incorporated the scribal glosses into the text itself. Now, William Hendrickson, another conservative, reformed scholar, no liberal by any stretch of the imagination, no critic of Scripture by any stretch of the imagination, says, it is probably much more difficult to explain how it came about that these words were omitted from all the best manuscripts if they were really part of the original than to account for the manner in which they may have crept into the text. End quote. Now you're in the second or third stages of anesthesia. So let me argue for you for this side over here what they're basically saying is that it wasn't part of the original sometime after John wrote this, some scribe in the margin of a manuscript wrote down the explanation as to why the man was waiting, that the man mentions in verse 7, why the man was waiting for the stirring of the water. And that generations later, that scribal note in the margin of that manuscript was incorporated into the text and then later on accepted as part of the text. In short, there is no Greek manuscript that we know of or that we have in anybody's possession dated prior to 400 A.D. that contains verses 3 and verse 4. So now the question in your mind is, Am I part of the conservative camp that believes verses 3 and 4 is actually part of the original John's gospel? Or am I part of the conservative camp that believes that verses 3 and 4 were not part of John's original gospel? And I'm not going to die for either one, but I would say I lean towards this camp. I would lean towards this camp. Now, does that mean that I have I've taken a black sharpie and marked these verses out of my Bible? I haven't done that. I haven't cut them out or anything like that. I may be wrong about that. I'm entirely open to the possibility that I may be wrong about that. So what then, now this is the second issue, what are we to do if we, if we say that it's not part of John's original gospel, or if we say that it is part of John's original gospel, whichever camp we are in, what then are we to make about this business of the angel coming down and stirring the water and a healing happening to the first person pushed or heaved in or jumping in to the pool? What's going on here? Well, once again, we're basically left with two options. First, what John is describing here, or what a later writer is describing here, whichever camp you're in, is an actual long-standing supernatural miracle that was going on in the days of Jesus at this pool, a legitimate working of God. Now, some would say that. J.C. Ryle would say that. And that's what J.C. Ryle argues. And that seems to be a very logical, natural conclusion. If you're in this camp over here regarding the first issue, that it's legitimate, then it would make sense that you would say, okay, well, this is just a long-standing, perpetual miracle that was going on in the days of Jesus. Jesus was at the pool. The people were waiting. And it was really happening that an angel would come down, stir up the pool. Whoever jumped in first would be healed. I'm not opposed to that. I think it's possible. I think miracles were possible. I think miracles happened. You know that. I'm not an anti-supernaturalist. Though I have certain theological reservations about it, this being primarily it, when I understand the purpose of signs and wonders throughout the New Testament, I have a theological objection to this being an actual sign and wonder going on here for whatever reason it was going on. So I would already be over here in this camp, and here is what I think is going on. And by the way, you can believe this even if you're over here in this camp regarding the first issue. <laughs> Everybody is thoroughly confused. Regarding the second issue, I would be over here in this camp. I think that what is being described here, either by John or by another writer later, is not an actual miracle that was happening in the days of Jesus. It is an explanation of the superstition that surrounded this pool at which all of these people were, in which all of these people were placing their faith and their hope for a miracle. Now some of there are historical writers who have observed this pool and noted that the water in the pool had a red tinge to it. And some people have suggested it may have had a very natural spring that sort of bubbled up into this pool. And then with the bubbling up into this pool of this mineral water, that somebody may have been helped or healed from whatever ailment that they had. And so this started circulating hundreds of years before this happened, or dozens of years, 
dozens of years before this event in John 5. And so this pool had sort of a supernatural superstition attached to it. And when they saw the bubbling of the water, the superstition said that that was an angel doing that and that anybody who jumped in was healed of whatever ailment that they had. Now, is that possible? Do you think people are are really silly enough to believe that a certain place or a certain thing could work for them a divine miracle? Are people really that naive? To ask the question is to answer the question. Of course it is. You do not have to search far and long to find people who will attach supernatural powers to relics, to places where saints lived, places where saints supposedly did miracles, to pools of water or fountains or an apparition of Mary or a picture of Jesus in a tortilla or a hundred other types of bizarre supernatural manifestations or quasi-supernatural manifestations where these superstitions grow up around them. And that seems to be the superstition in the days of this pool. That when the water bubbled up, you heave your relative into it, and if you happen to be the first one to hit the water, he's healed of what is every man for himself, he's healed of whatever ailment is causing his disease or whatever ailment he has. Now you would think that after a couple of people were pushed into the pool or got into the pool after the water stirred, you would think that after a couple that weren't healed, if it's indeed just a superstition, that the superstition would dissipate. You would think that, wouldn't you? Or is it possible that even in the face of overwhelming proof against the legitimacy of this idea, that people would still cling to a false hope and a superstition? Would you like a modern-day parallel? How many thousands, tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands of people follow around men like Benny Hinn because they believe that he has the power to heal them? And some of them, and you heard Justin Peters talk about this almost a year ago, some of them will travel from city to city to convention to convention, giving their money to him and reading his books and giving their money to him and listening to his tapes and giving their money to him and following him around and giving their money to him. And they also give their money to him. And yet they will do this in spite of not a single verifiable, actual, organic healing. Not one documented case. The man is a fraud from first to last and a false teacher and a total sham, a total joke. But do his numbers go down? Not at all. Not one whit. They grow constantly. I've shared this with some of you. You know what the difference is between Benny Hinn and a dog? A dog can heal. And Benny Hinn can't. He has no ability to heal whatsoever. But that doesn't stop people from glomming on to him and embracing him and loving him and always following him around waiting for their miracle. That, I believe, is the condition of this man at the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus singled him out. Now, if that is the case with this man, if he is indeed locked in a superstitious belief and he is holding on to hopes of that miracle, then we can understand the rest of what we read about him in the rest of this passage. Look at verse 5. He had been in this condition, a man who had been ill for 38 years. It was a long-standing illness, 38 years. Now, it doesn't say, and I heard one commentator say this, he had been at the pool for 38 years. It doesn't say that, does it? It just says he had had this condition for 38 years. He might have been at the pool for a week. We don't know that. But we know that he had this condition. It was a long-standing condition, and it was 38 years. That is almost four decades. I'm 38 years old now. That's a long time. 
this feels like a long time to me to be afflicted with this type of a paralysis. Some of you older are shaking your head. It's not a long time. Well, it is a long time. 38 years is a long time. 38 years is a long time to be crippled, is it not? Justin Peters was 38 or 39 years old, and he has lived with his disability his whole life. That is a long time. Further, the rest of the passage seems to indicate that his illness, whatever it was, we don't know what the illness is, we know what the result of it was, that it was caused by sin, a personal sin. Later on in the passage, you notice in verse 14, when Jesus saw the man in the temple, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. And the warning is about a future judgment that would come. In other words, Jesus is using the miracle as an opportunity to talk to him about repentance and faith, but he's also warning him about the reality that sinning might continue, might bring the condition back. There's a sort of an implied statement there that his original paralysis was a result of sin. Now, does that mean that every paralysis and every disease and every illness is a result of sin? Is that true? No, it's not. It's not true. It's not true that no illness and no paralysis and no death and no disease is a result of sin, but it's not true that all of them are a result of sin. They might be the result of sin. It's possible, but not all of them are. Some of the afflictions that we go through are just the result of living in a sin-cursed, fallen world under the curse of God for original sin in Genesis 3. Some of our sicknesses are just the result of that. So it's bad theology to go up to somebody and say, you know what, I'm praying for you, but I want you to know that your affliction or your suffering, your disease, your illness, or whatever it is that you've got going on might be the result of your lack of faith or it might be the result of your personal sin. That is not only atrocious theology, it is bad form, to say the least. It's not encouraging whatsoever. Well, this man's disease seems to be the result of personal sin. It was a long-standing illness, and it resulted in some form of paralysis. How do we know that? Because Jesus mentions later on the mat that he had, pick up your bed and walk. This man was laying at the pool. They would have had uh, a bed rolls of blankets or a pad that he, the people would roll up and they would transport around, common thing in those days. This man was laying on one at the pool, indicating that he may have spent his days or even his nights there at the pool. There's nobody to take him to and from the pool. He doesn't have anybody even to roll him into the pool, let alone transport him to and from the pool. So this man's lying on a pallet, and he has nobody to push him into the pool, indicating that the man is not even able himself to get there before somebody else jumps in. After the stirring of the water, the pool is already filled with people before this man has a chance to even get himself moving toward the pool. He's that desperate. He's that neglected. Now, in that day, people didn't have compassion on men like this. I want you to imagine his condition. In those days, the prevailing mentality, the prevailing way of looking at people like this man was that if you suffered from an illness or a paralysis like this, that it was a result of your sin. That's the way everybody thought. That's what everybody assumed. And so people like this were not shown compassion. They were neglected. They weren't cared for. Because people looked at them and said, if you're suffering with this condition, it must be the result of your sin. And if it is the result of your sin, then why would I step in and alleviate that? I wouldn't step in and alleviate that. You have this coming. So you ought to be the outcast. You ought to be the dregs of society. So he was a neglected man. I I read this and I ask myself, did he not even have a wife or children? Or did he not have any friends in this world who could hang out with him or even take shifts with him next to the pool? If this was the mentality, was he so neglected that nobody would wait with him a few hours to pitch him into the pool when the time came just in hopes of helping cure this man? That's how neglected he was. He also would have been financially destitute. The text doesn't say this, but we know how beggars were treated in that society. They were the poorest of the poor. In an agrarian society like that, if you couldn't walk, you couldn't work. 
And if you couldn't work, you couldn't do anything to earn a living. If you couldn't do anything to earn a living, you were completely dependent upon other people to either give you the gifts or to provide for your daily sustenance. So he was completely at the mercy of other people. Now, how many people took notice of him when nobody even took enough notice of him to throw him in the water for healing? How many people would stop and bother to feed this man? And after 38 years, can you imagine the despondency and the depression and the discouragement after being in that condition, having nobody to roll you into the pool when the water was stirred? Can you imagine the loneliness that you would feel and the neglect that you would feel day after day, night after night, of waiting for something like that? The man is locked in his superstition, locked in his mental darkness, locked in blindness, basically, totally destitute, totally alone, totally without anything to help him. And he is clinging to this one hope. If I can manage on the right day at the right time to get into that pool before somebody else does, I'll be healed. Don't you just have to have pity on somebody like that? That is just a pitiable, miserable condition. Now, I'm not one to begin to spiritualize the text, and I don't want to in any way take from the, away from the literal historical understanding of this, but occasionally we come across in, scriptures, in Scripture things that are analogous or analogies of a spiritual condition. And maybe some of you have already seen it. This man in his physical condition was utterly hopeless, utterly lonely, utterly destitute, unable to help himself, and receiving no help from anybody else. Is it not true that that is the condition of the unsaved person before they are reached by the grace of God in their sin? It is. But my analogy limps a little bit, if you'll pardon the pun, in that our condition, spiritually speaking, is actually worse off than the man physically speaking. Because Jesus Christ in salvation did not just come in and make us able. He didn't just come in and make us able to fix ourselves. But I wasn't just limp or paralyzed spiritually before I was saved. I was dead spiritually before I was saved. So salvation does not just make me able to walk again. It actually is a resurrection to new life. But the condition of this man in his hopeless, helpless estate is very similar to the condition of a lost person without Christ. I don't know about you, before I was saved, I clung to a lot of superstitions and a lot of phony beliefs and a lot of bad theology that was all mine in the darkness of my mind and the darkness of my intellect. And my heart and my mind were hostile to God. And I was without God, alienated from the covenant, alienated from the promises, and uh, apart from God in this world. That is our hopeless, lost condition. And it is into that hopeless and lost condition that Jesus Christ comes to seek us out, because we do not seek him, and to single us out of all the masses of humanity and to show his amazing, sovereign, condescending grace. This man ultimately is a reminder to us of how hopeless and helpless we are without Christ and how compassionate our Lord is to those who recognize their helpless and hopeless estate. Well, we'll look at the cure and the consequences to that cure next week. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the compassion of our Lord, that our Christ is a compassionate God and a compassionate friend. We thank you for your seeking and singling out and saving grace. Thank you that having saved us, you will also sanctify us and secure us until the end. We thank you that your goodness is on display in all the works that you have made. We thank you that there is nothing too difficult for you. We thank you for the grace that is ours in Christ and that you have condescended enough to save us and that by your grace we cling to him. We say these things, we confess our need once again, and thank you for our security in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.